Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here this morning. You can grab a seat and uh, we'll get started. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings um, and we'll be in chapter 6 and 7, uh, kind of the beginning of 8 uh, as we go through and continue our series in the Lord's sight. Um, our series has continued through the summer. Uh, we'll continue for the next several weeks. Then we'll be doing 2 Corinthians uh, and we'll jump into that. And just as a reminder, you know, we're, we find ourselves, I think most of you have been here at least for one of the series, um, but we find ourselves in the middle of 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. You see often this term used, in the Lord's eyes or in the Lord's sight. And who do we think we are in his sight? The world, our nation, what does that mean? And God throughout those books uses this phrase over and over again about how he sees how things are happening, how he sees the leaders. He talks about the different kings. Some were evil in his sight, some were good in his sight. And if you remember, where we find ourselves is a split. We find ourselves a nation split into a southern and northern kingdom. They, they've drawn a boundary, and in the southern kingdom is Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. In the northern kingdom are the ten other tribes, because there were twelve tribes from Jacob, right? And that was the promise of God that he would make Jacob's descendants a nation, God has done that, he's fulfilled his promise, but now they're destroying that nation that God built. Okay, that's what's happening. And they are split. If you go back to where the split happened, it's because a bunch of people were greedy for power, they were greedy for wealth, they were greedy for all the same things we're greedy for, and it's ended up in this split of a nation. The northern kingdom of Israel never has one righteous king in all of their hundreds of years of existence. Not once. Not a single king that did what was right because none of them would go back and go against the original founding of the nation, which was wicked. That at the, at the original founding of the nation, God asked Jeroboam, who split away from Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he looked at Jeroboam and he said, look, I understand that you need to split right now. I understand that what Rehoboam is doing is wicked. I understand that. But when you go and you split away... Still allow all those ten tribes to go to Jerusalem so they can fulfill the Old Testament and obey me. Don't keep them from being able to obey what I've asked them to do and worship me. And Jeroboam said, no. And he created two golden calves. He put one in Bethel and one in Dan. You can see those on the map. And he said, this now is the God of Yahweh. And Jeroboam created an entire different structure of government, an entire different structure of religion, that was supposed to kind of mirror the old one, right? So it had these layers of kind of like God, but it really wasn't what God said. And he did evil in the Lord's sight. And every king after Jeroboam, even though a few times those kings would repent or those kings would say, oh, I'm sorry, God, and God would not destroy them and give them a little bit longer, none of them ever finally just did what was right in the Lord's sight and go back and undo the curse that was on them. And that's a lot like us today, right? We just want to do enough so that we're kind of right in everybody's eyes. Like, I'm okay now, right? Like, we're good now, right? Like, we're good, God, right? Like, I'm good with people. We don't actually want to go all the way to the point of, like, surrender to God. I even heard a story this week talking to a young man, and he was talking about how he was doing some ministry with some students, and it just broke his heart because as he was talking to some parents, one of the parents said, was almost upset that their, their kid had become so religious. Like, like my, my child has become a little too religious, too committed. 
Like, like that's where we're at in Christian homes today, right? And so it's very reflective of where we are today. So this morning, what I want to look at as we look in the passage is this, and that's please open their eyes. You know, the heart of the southern kingdom could have been to pray and ask God and seek the Lord to, to open the eyes of their northern kingdom neighbors. But we don't find that in the scriptures. We don't. We don't find any great prayers from any of the kings in the southern kingdom praying, seeking God, crying out on behalf of the northern kingdom. We find a lot of kings that try to make peace and think, well, if I fight with them, if I, if I give a daughter or son in marriage, then, then maybe they'll get it and their eyes will be opened and they'll change. We find a lot of that happening in the southern kingdom to try to convince the northern kingdom. But what we don't find is the southern kingdom really like drawing boundaries, holding the northern kingdom accountable, and calling for repentance. So God sends these prophets into the northern kingdom. We have them in the Bible. Isaiah is probably the major prophet for the northern kingdom. Jeremiah is the major prophet for the southern kingdom. But there also is this prophet named Elisha that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And Elisha is a prophet to the northern kingdom trying to get them to see and get their eyes open to who God is. God has done miraculous miracles through Elisha, just like when Jesus came, God did miraculous miracles through Jesus, and they still ignored the message of Jesus, and they killed him because they didn't want to change how they were doing things. Same exact thing in Elisha's day. And you know what? It can be the same thing for us. That when we read the Bible, when we're looking at Scripture, when we're, when we're seeing things that we need to change, it's easier just to kill that than it is to deal with it. Because we understand that the cost of dealing with it may be way greater than we want to pay. So I just want things to be okay. I just, I just want things, you know, I just want to be the way I want to be in everybody's eyes. And and what we find in this story that we're going to read this morning in a couple of these stories are people whose eyes have been opened and they've been changed. That their eyes are opened and now they see the world. And you're going to see in the story that when their eyes are opened, things don't happen exactly like they think they're going to happen. And if you think that we have it bad, wait until you read what we see this morning. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I just pray very simply, not in a lot of words, open our eyes. Open my eyes. Open those that are here, those that are joining online. And Lord, would we be people that go out with this kind of heart to pray for people and open the eyes and help open the eyes of others to who you are in your name. Amen. Second Kings 6.1 says this, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Please notice that the place where we live under your supervision is too small for us. This is like the ask of every wife in America. Right? At some point. Right? It's not we have too much stuff. We need to downsize. It's we need more storage. Right? Right? Guys too. Not just picking on the wives, but guys too. Right? It's like it's hard to really think in your heart, like 
Do I just, why do I want more? And, and two, he says, the other prophets who Elisha is raising up to go across the northern empire to tell everybody how bad they stink and how they need to repent. That's what this prophetic school was for, was raising up people to go out and give the true message of Yahweh and attack the idolatry of their nation. Okay? As he's doing that, they're like, well, you're the supervisor. Look at that. They say, well, we're under your supervision. Like, we, like you're going to have to give us permission. And isn't it awesome that, that Elijah just doesn't look at them and go, be content, move on with your life. That, that's not what he does. Because that's not what God does to us. God's like, okay, if you think you need that, fine. That, okay, I'll give it to you. And then eventually you'll wake up one day and be like, well, that didn't work. It doesn't make me any happier. That really didn't solve anything. Right? And then you have to come to the real answers of why you made that decision. Some good, some not good. So he goes on and it says, please let us go to the Jordan where we can each get along and build ourselves a place to live there. Now I give them credit. They didn't look at Elisha and say, you pay for it, you give us a bigger place. They said, hey, we'll participate. We'll go cut down the logs. We'll build our own homes together. Like literally, they're saying, we're going to do that. We're going to participate. Elijah's like, okay. But there's a major problem. And here we go. He says, go. Then one said, please come with your servants. I'll come, he answered. And so they go. And in verse 5, and, and they had to borrow an axe because they were so poor, these prophets didn't ask for money from people. Nobody wanted to give them money because they were all idolatrous and didn't like their message. And they didn't want to support someone when they, you know, you don't want to give money to people that are telling you bad things, right? Like, I don't like that guy. I want to give money to people who tell me positive things. And so these people, they were poor, so they had to borrow an axe and share one axe among all of them to cut down these logs to build their house. That's how poor these prophets are, okay? And then we go on the story, and as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, oh, my master, it was borrowed. <laughs> if you're with all your buddies and all the other prophets, and you've been working together on a project, and you haven't gotten to cut your log yet for your house, and Bob over there puts the axe in the bottom of the stream, you're not very happy with Bob. Like, you should have been more careful. Why didn't you check to see if it was a tat? I mean, you go through all the scenarios of, like, judging him for why you didn't do the right thing and you lost the axe head. Goes on and said, he goes to the master. He goes directly to who can solve the problem. Then the man of God asked, um, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, the man of God cut a stick. So they're cutting down logs, right? Throwing them in the Jordan, floating them down the Jordan River so then they can pull them out to build, that's what they're doing, okay? He just cuts off a little stick. Like, yeah, you guys need all your big logs, right? Watch this. He cuts off a little stick and he just throws it in. When he showed him the place, he threw it in there and it made the iron float. Then he said, pick it up. So the prophet, the other guy reached out and picked up the axe head. And that's all we know about the story. I love this story because it opens the eyes of these prophets to the reality of their own heart and the miraculous of God. There was another person who wasn't supposed to be on top of the water who walked on water. This is just a small picture of one day the one that would actually be over the water. He just doesn't make iron float. He can walk on it. And so this picture that Elisha gives them, and listen, 
Maybe for you, you're struggling because you think, does God even see me? Does he even care? God cares about logs and axe heads. Yes, he cares about you. He cares enough about the guy who got his axe lost from the prophet to be like, well, this is going to be really embarrassing and the guy doesn't get his axe, so I care enough about him to make it float and we can give it back to him. Like God deeply cares. This story, even though so small, and it's like, why is this here? It communicates a ton about God's heart and what he's trying to get people like us to see in our lives. That it's not wrong to pursue things in life. It's not going to work out the way you want. God comes through in the end, and you didn't never see it coming. This is what God does over and over again. So we pick up the rest of the story It says, when the king of Aram was waging war against Israel, he conferred with his servants, my camp will be at such and such a place. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, be careful passing by this place, for the Arameans are going down there. Consequently, the king of Israel sent word to the place um, the man of God had told him about. The man of God repeatedly warned the king of Israel so the king would be on his guard. The king of Aram was enraged because... Of this matter, and he called his servants and demanded of them, Tell me which one of you is for the king of Israel. In other words, there's got to be a traitor. There's no way that the king in Israel has the goods on every time I go someplace, he avoids me and my army. Someone in my camp is betraying me. See, it never crosses his mind that maybe God's against you. Maybe this isn't working out because you're doing something God doesn't want you to do. That it's not anybody betraying you. It's literally God Almighty that's saying no. But see, we want to find the traitor. We want to find the problem. We want to find the person that's that because we're looking through our eyes. Instead of asking the question that he should have asked, which is, am I doing what's right in God's eyes? And then it says, one of the servants said, no one, my Lord, the king. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in your bedroom. (laughs) God sees everything. And he still cares about you. He still cares about me. And he still cares about people. When he should just annihilate us and destroy us. Because we deserve it. And yet he still cares enough to try to keep people from not warring against each other. He could have made Israel really strong and given the king a powerful army to just kill all the Arameans and wipe them out. But that's not what God was doing in this moment. It's not what the story plays out to be. In 2 Kings, it goes on. So the king said, go and see where he is so I can send men to capture him. That's Elijah. When he was told Elisha is in Dotham, he sent horses, chariots, and a massive army there. This is one guy. This is one little prophet. And the king of Aram sends his like, massive army after one dude. Even the king of Aram recognizes that Elisha's God is really powerful. So I may not be scared of Elisha because he's just one little man, but there's a God behind him that I need force to deal with. It goes on and it says, then they went by night and surrounded the city. He wouldn't even come in the daylight. He's like, the God of Israel is the God of light. I'm coming in the dark, right? 
When the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elijah, oh, my master, what are we to do? So you got one guy saying, what are we supposed to do? The axe heads in, now another, like, what do we do? Elisha said, well, first thing, don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? Why do you keep freaking out about everything? Where's that coming from? I'm not afraid. He's there. I knew he was coming. Remember? Elisha knows where he's going all the time. Elisha knew where he was going, to Dotham. He didn't run away. He didn't, like, fortify his Dotham together. He didn't get the prophets armed. He's like, I know where he's going to be. I'm good. I slept really well last night. You're really panicked. Like, there's horses. Yeah, I know. I knew it. I, I know where he's going. Then it goes on. It says, then Elisha prayed, please, Lord, please. Oh, wait, sorry. For those who are with us, outnumber those who are with them. That's important. Those who are with us, he looks at his servant, he says, do you not understand that those who are with us outnumber those that are with him? And I don't know about you, but if I'm Elisha's prophet friend, I'm going, we don't even own an axe, and when we borrowed one, we lost it. And you want us to take on an army. And there's very few of us. We have no resources. We had to literally cut down logs to build little log homes for ourselves. What do you mean that there were, there's a number? This is cool. Goes on, it says, then Elijah prayed. Now, Elijah could pray anything here. He is the prophet of God. He has a direct access with God. Look at what he says. Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. Lord, I just, I just want my friend, I want my prophet buddy to just stop being a weenie and be afraid of everything and just see the reality of the world he lives in because he doesn't get it. He looked and saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That had to freak him out. I mean that his eyes were actually open to the spiritual reality in a physical world. When Jesus came into the world, Jesus for the first time broke through that barrier because he was the 100% God and 100% man. And he brought them together in a way that if we don't know Jesus, the Bible says then you have no access to that spiritual realm. This is a picture of that. Do you not see that the, that the Lord is the Lord of hosts, the Old Testament says. The Lord of armies is what that means. He is Yahweh of armies, and he has them, and they're ready to go at all times. But he's holding them back. And the Bible says the reason God holds back his army, are you ready for this, is because he loves you. And he loves the guy you went to high school with. And he loves the guy that's in college with you. And he loves your family members that don't know Jesus. It's the only reason God's armies that are everywhere stationed right now, that heaven itself is ready for the command to come and destroy. And the Bible says that the only reason God doesn't do that is because he's waiting for more people to repent. He's holding back his wrath because he loves us in mercy and grace. That should amaze you. 
Because you deserve these armies to come down on your head just as much as these guys do. And God is holding it back and he's letting you see through the scriptures the beauty of who he is. When we read the scriptures, it opens our eyes to the reality that this is true. That the world I live in, that all the armies in Ukraine and Russia, everywhere else that are fighting, they're fake. They're not going to last that nation's going to be torn down. Another one's going to take its place. It's, it all, it, all through history this happens. But there is a God who never changes. He goes on and says this. When the Arameans came against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, please strike this nation with blindness. So he struck them with blindness according to the word, Elisha's word. Okay, stop for a second. Elisha is commanding the armies around him at this moment. Aram has been attacking the Israelites, right? But remember, last week we talked about Naaman, who is in charge of a lot of the Aramean army, and God's mercy on Naaman to save him. And the Aram is part of, the, of Noah's descendants, and so God is keeping his promise to Noah that he would have many nations. So God is keeping his promise by not destroying them. So here's Elisha. I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting there and I see an Arabian army surrounding me and my friend asks me, hey, do you, and I, his eyes are open, I'm, me and him are going to be like, hey, let's pray for all them to kill them and let's watch it happen. This would be fun, right? You would. You'd be like, God, get them. They've been hurting my people. They've been hurting my family members that are lost. They've been, they've been raiding. They're, they're being mean to God's people. They need to be judged. Call them down. You'd pray that. You would. Because of all the wickedness that they had done. How many people do you think in World War II were praying, dear God, please help the Nazis' eyes to be open so that they will repent and quit fighting and surrender to you, the God of universe? And how many of them were just praying that our soldiers would beat the other ones? I'm not saying it's wrong to pray that God wins. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we should be careful because Elisha had the ability to call down and destroy and because he doesn't, some really cool stuff happens. Look at what happens. Then Elisha said to them, so now this army is blinded. He prays for blindness. Look, when people are blind but not dead, they're blind spiritually. They can't see the reality. That's actually the mercy of God in their life. He's giving them more time when they deserve to be annihilated. When you are blind and don't get it, and your spouse still stays with you. When your parents are blind and they don't get it, and you still submit and love them the best you can. When other people are blind and you say, you know what, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying they're right, but I'm going to pray that their eyes would be opened then you recognize that the reason that blindness is there is so that hopefully in God's patience and mercy, he will open their eyes at some point. Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. So he says, hey, this isn't the way. In other words, I'm not really Elisha. This isn't Dotham. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you're looking for. And he led the entire army of Syria. When they entered to Samaria, that's the capital, he leads them into the capital city of the Israelite army. But can you imagine the scene? Elisha leading Aram and the 
King of Israel being like, has he betrayed me? Is he with Aram now? He just saved that Naaman guy. I mean, this had to be like some panic in this moment. Watch what happens. Follow me. And he led them to Samaria. When they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Lord, open these men's eyes. He prays for his servants' eyes to be open, and he prays the same prayer for lost people's eyes to be open. It's the same prayer. I want people to see you, period. That's our prayer. I want people to know God, to see you, to understand who you are. They looked and discovered they were in Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, he has been wanting to kill Elijah, Elisha multiple times. He's been angry and wants to get rid of him. And now he's like, you're the best guy ever because you brought my enemies and blinded them and brought them right to me. This is, like, I love you. You're so nice. Should I kill them? Right? Do we get to kill them? We're going to get them? I'll kill them. <laughs> Should we? I mean, I'm ready. I'll do it. I mean, somebody has to do it. I'll take care of them. Some, somebody's got to really be the guy. And if I have to, I'll annihilate them all. Elijah replied, don't kill them. Do you kill those you have captured with the sword or your bow? Do you have no mercy, Israel? God should have destroyed you, king of Israel, a long time ago. And he hasn't. And your first response is you want him dead? Set food and water in front of them so they can eat and drink and go to their master. I wonder if their master was Naaman. I wonder if their master was the king. I mean, he was the king of Aram. In other words, why don't we teach them how merciful and full of grace and awesome our God is and send them back to tell their people how merciful and awesome and how wonderful the grace of the God of Israel is. When they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master, and check this out, the Aramean raiders did not come into Israel's land ever again. That doesn't mean the armies didn't come, but now they weren't raiding. Nobody wanted to do that anymore. They were like, why are we attacking people so kind? Why, why, this God that blinded us, and like, I don't want anything, even the ones that probably didn't repent, at least they said, I don't want anything to do with that craziness. That God's nuts. I don't want anything to do with that, right? Interesting, because Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What do you pray for people who are persecuting you? For their eyes to be open. Not God get them, not God stop this because I'm hurting. God, I want them to see you. And if they see you, they'll understand what I understand. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So that you'll be sons. See, a son does what the Father wants him to do to represent the authority of the Father. And God says, I want my authority represented in mercy and grace. 
Yes, there's justice. God at other times destroys people. At other times, God doesn't have justice and mercy. It's done. He says it's time. But in this instance, God is trying to show people his love and his grace. And it doesn't mean, listen, I've said this before, you can mercilessly kill someone or mercifully kill someone. Sometimes death is the only option, especially when you're defending others. It goes on in Romans, says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes, if possible, on your part. In other words, sometimes it's not possible to live at peace with people. It's just not. They won't have peace. They won't agree to the word of God. They won't agree to the terms. Like sometimes it's just not possible. But it says, that means you can still have peace when it's not possible in your heart, but you can't have peace with them. And then he goes on and it says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. See, we, most of the time when we think justice, we want God to do justice, not because we really think God's glory is at stake, but because we're mad that somebody did something to us. It's not wrong to want justice when you see God's glory being defamed. It is not wrong to say that is evil, that is wrong, and I'm drawing a line. That is, no. But most of the time, that's not why we do it. We want vengeance because something happened to us personally. And then he says, instead, leave room for his wrath. So God says, look, I get it. Wrath is deserved. But be careful you're not taking vengeance for yourself. Leave room, you ready for this? For my time to play out. By the way, if you're a Christian, according to Jesus, your whole life is nothing but waiting for Jesus' wrath to come. That's all you will be doing. And if you die and go to heaven before Jesus comes back, you know what you're going to be doing in heaven? Waiting for Jesus' wrath to finally come and make everything right. It's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be worshiping. You're going to be saying how great his glory is, how awesome he is, and you can't wait till he makes everything right. Then he goes on and it says, friends, do not do this, for it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will, heap, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now, that doesn't mean we just let people get by with things. It doesn't mean if we see someone that's being hurt that we don't step in and say, no, that's not going to happen. But when things happen to us, there's a different decision-making process that should kick in. Does God want me to suffer and endure this on behalf of that person, or am I supposed to stand up to the tyranny? See, that's a harder question. And he says, if you heap fiery coals on their head, don't be surprised if they finally repent because that's exactly what they did. Psalm 48.5 in the Old Testament says this. You know, sometimes we see the Old Testament as it's all about wrath and it's, you, God's going to get everybody. That's such garbage. We just read a story where God could have just destroyed them all and he's like, nah, I'll, I'm holding back. Later, Aram gets annihilated. It gets, Aram gets completely wiped out by the Assyrians, as does the northern kingdom of Israel. Like, they all get punished. Psalm 40, 146, 5 says, Happy is the one whose help 
is the God of Jacob, who, whose hope is in the Lord or Yahweh his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects foreigners and helps the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. How frustrated do you think the king of Aram was when his whole army came back and they're like, man, that was great. We went there to fight him and they threw us a party. We were fully fed. We were hungry. It was great. We love those people. I sent you there. You were supposed to kill them. No, we're not going back. Find another army. Goes on and says this. Strengthen the weak hands. Steady the shaking knees. That's that fear that we have. Our weak hands, our shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong. Do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming eventually. Like you don't have to take it into your own hands. It's coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. The, Lord, the eyes of the Lord or the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will keep will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah goes on to say, On that day the deaf will hear the words of a document. The reason we have the Bible is because it's prophesied in Isaiah that the way that people's eyes are going to be opened someday, the, the primary way that people's eyes are going to be opened is not the sending of prophets anymore with special words from God. It's going to be the actual written word of God that you have in your hands. That is the most powerful tool to open the eyes of people on the face of the planet. There is no more powerful tool than the word of God in the lives of you or other people. You want to get me to repent? You want me to see my stupidity? You want me to stop being a jerk? Take me to the Bible. And every time I'm like, ah. Oh. But if you get in an argument with me, boy, I can argue you. Trust me. I've raised teenagers. I can go at it. Let's go. You take me to the word of God and all of a sudden something different happens. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's that's the power. He says there's going to be a day when the way that people's eyes are open and their ears are opened is through the word of a document. 66 documents. This is how it's going to be done. And then he says, look at this. And out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord. And the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Joy and rejoicing because you have the book. You have the whole story. You know how it ends. You have revelation that tells us that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We have a God that wins, period. And you know what? If they kill me, it doesn't matter. I'm coming back to life. Do it again. What are you going to do to me? I'm not afraid. Kill me. Okay, I'll just be back alive again. And then I get a new body someday. Thanks. It speeds up the process. I've been waiting for that. Like that should be the heart of the believer. And instead we run around fearful that we're going to lose everything. You're not going to lose anything. It's all going to be brought back to you, the Bible says. We are the ones that are supposed to have 
joy and rejoicing because our eyes actually are open to the reality of the word of God. That our eyes are opened because we listen to the prophets of God. You guys are prophets. I'm a prophet. Not because I've got like Elisha's ministry. I'm not writing the word anymore. But the Bible says that if we know Jesus, we are prophets, priests, and kings. That's who we are. We've been given citizenship in heaven and we've been given priesthood, prophethood, and kingship with Jesus. But we don't fully get to exercise it. You know why? Because we live in a place where prophets aren't powerful, priests aren't, don't even have a priesthood here because it's a foreign land, and we aren't kings yet because we're in a foreign land. But we represent a nation to say, yeah, I'm a prophet, a priest, and a king of another nation that's not here yet, but someday it's going to come down and squash you. I'm just letting you know. God is really patient with you. He's holding out, but someday he's not going to hold out anymore. You're going to have to stand before him and give an account. He goes on and says this in Matthew, are you the one who is to come? This is John the Baptist asking his, his disciples, asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come that Isaiah talked about, that Jeremiah talked about, that Moses talked about, that the whole Old Testament said there's going to be a Messiah who actually comes to save us? Are you the one or should we expect somebody else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Look at my giant army and all the swords we have and how we kill all the Romans. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? That's what the Jews wanted. They were waiting for a Messiah that would come and kill all the bad people so they could have control of everything. And that's why they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Because instead, what Jesus did was open blind people's eyes that were Gentiles and Jews. He, he, he made the lame walk. Those with skin diseases, he healed. The deaf were hearing. The dead were raised and the poor are told the good news. And if anyone's not offended because of me, he is blessed. He's happy. That's what the word means. As these men were in way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Hey, um, what did you guys go out into the wilderness to see? See, we all want to go see a show. We all go to see an experience. We want to see the armies of God on the hills come down and annihilate everyone. We don't want to see Elisha, all the armies, and he's like, hey, could you make them blind? And he's like, hey, just follow me. And he just fought, like leads this army. You're like, well, that's, I was, that was kind of anticlimactic. Like I was waiting for like something big, and it's like Elijah's like, come on, let's go. And he's just walking with like that. And, okay, then when they get to Samaria, I see what Elisha's doing. He's going to get him into Samaria, and then, oh, boom, we're going to get him. No. No, bring out some food, bring out some, let's just feed them and love. Well, now we're going to kill them. We fattened them up, we're going to kill them now, right? No, we're going to send them back. That's why they crucified Jesus. They couldn't stand the message. He goes on, he says, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children singing in the marketplace who call out to each other. What are they calling out? They're like, we're doing a dance. Look at us. We're singing a song. You all want attention. What should I compare this generation to? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You're all a bunch of children just wanting attention. Look at me. Look at me. When God says, I want you to see me. I want people to see me, not you. It's not wrong to have Facebook or Instagram, but what are you doing with it? 
Is it for the glory of God or the glory of yourself and the life that you want to project? Jesus says that's exactly what every generation's done. They want the attention for themselves. They're like little kids. Look at me, look at me. They're not thinking about how I serve the family. They're thinking about being served because that's what kids do. Then he goes on, he says, then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they wouldn't repent. John goes on to say, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. This is right after Lazarus, one of Jesus' cousins and best friends, dies. Lazarus dies. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. They're like, we want to show you. Jesus is like, well, I I already know he's dead. Like, I just, where'd you put him, right? Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, right there. Two words, Jesus wept. You ever wept? You're in good company, so did Jesus. It's a normal human behavior. And he wept because of all kinds of emotions. We see anger here, we see sadness. I mean, he is overwhelmed with all the emotion right now. And it says, look, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes have also kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have healed Lazarus? Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. He is angry. He's, he's upset about the way the world is. He hates death. He's tired of this. He wants, to, he, listen, Jesus is God has emotion. That's where we get our emotions from. But God never uses his emotions unrighteously. We do. And so Jesus is feeling all the emotion of the mess of life and death and things aren't working out how they're supposed to and people doubting him. All these things. And he, he, look at what he says. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him. Lord, He's already decaying. It's been four days. That's going to stink. You open that thing up and you know. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see dead people come back to life? Oh, that's not what he said. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would actually have eyes to be able to see where God is working and see his glory? And to tell the difference between the fake and the real. Didn't I tell you that? And I'm the real deal. I'm the Messiah. I'm here. And you're doubting me as the Messiah. I said, open the tomb, open the tomb. I'm ticked off. We're dealing with this right now. Everybody else has got to wait on resurrection. Lazarus ain't waiting because I'm ticked. He's getting resurrected now. And I say this story all the time. You know what happened to Lazarus? If you keep reading the story after he was resurrected, the rest of his life, everybody wants to kill him. He literally, all the Pharisees, scribes, everybody is looking and hunting for Lazarus. Wow, what a resurrection. Like, yay, I'm alive. Now everyone wants to kill me. I was really popular and I had a good business and now I got nothing. Yeah, could you just kill me again? Like, I'm good, just Or how about Lazarus is dead and he's at peace. Maybe he's even with God and then all of a sudden God's like, it was good to see you. Go back. And you wake up and you're like, no, I was out of there finally. You see, we see it as, wow, Lazarus got resurrected, but he had to come back and die a second time. I don't want to die twice. I just want to die once. Luke says this, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near. This is after Jesus' resurrection, right? Jesus came near. 
and began to walk along the road with them. But they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. Just like Elisha blinded the Arameans, at this moment, Jesus is not allowing the disciples to recognize who he is. This is beautiful. You see, sometimes God does this. God will sometimes put us in situations where he teaches, he teaches, he teaches, he teaches us, and then all of a sudden it like, boom, clicks on. That's what happened to me. 18 years of my grandparents and parents teaching and teaching, showing me the importance of the local church, showing me the God of Scripture and all of that. And finally, eight, in October of 1993, my freshman year, click, it all comes together. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 jumps off the page, becomes alive for the first time. My eyes are open to the reality of the grace of God, who he is, the faith of God. And all of that 18 years of work, boom, blew me away changed me forever, and I can't get away from it. goes on, it says, he asked them, what is the dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? <laughs> They're fighting. They're arguing. And Jesus shows up right in the middle of the fight. I love that. God does that all the time. He shows up in the middle of my fights all the time in my family. Sometimes through our kids. It's great. And it goes on, it says, and they stopped walking and looked discouraged. <laughs> We're having a good discussion. We're having a good fight, and then you come in and ruin it with your teaching, talking about love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and blah. goes on, it says, he walked with them all the way, and it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then, at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. He's been walking with them the whole time, and all of a sudden they sit down, they break the bread, Elisha, the armies are breaking the bread, and all of a sudden they're like, boom, he's gone. That had to be like, whoa, right? And then, look at this, then they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Remember Isaiah said a document will be read and the, and the people will change and they'll be excited? Let me ask you, when you see the reading of God's word, what's your response to it? Does your heart get ablaze? Mine does. I love the book. I love scripture. It's why on Sunday morning we go through a lot of scripture. Heard a pastor say this week that in most churches they will barely read a dozen verses maybe on a Sunday morning. And that may even include the Lord's Prayer that they pray out loud. That they barely read Scripture, and yet this is what Jesus was doing. The whole time he was on the road, he's explaining the Scriptures to them of what all the stories meant about the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, that they see him as Messiah, that he's alive, and they go, oh, now all those stories make sense. He was telling us all the way down Oh, John, do you remember that? Oh, Peter, he said this. Oh, yeah, I know. All of a sudden, now they're teaching one another because their eyes have been opened. That's what you should be doing. It's what I should be doing. That when my eyes are open to the scripture, I should be going to my brothers and sisters in Christ and be like, look at Jesus. Look at who he is. My eyes have been opened. This is so beautiful. I say this all the time. The reason we struggle with evangelism is because we're not excited about talking about God on a daily basis. If you talk about God like you talk about your wife and your career and your kids and your hobbies at work, they're not going to be surprised when you talk about Jesus. And when they, if they do get offended and say, don't tell me all that God stuff, just look at them and be like, well, that's kind of what's really important to me. And I listen to you ramble on about the dolphins. And I don't give any care about that. Brian really likes the dolphins. That was attack on him. 
just so you know. He's a huge Dolphins fan. I think he's the only one in Indiana, but it's okay. Like he's, yeah, oh, that's right. His dad's in Columbus now. So yeah, he's, there's a couple of Dolphins fans. But we let Brian go on about the Dolphins and how it's going to be a different year this year, right? IU basketball is going to do it this year. People go on and on, and we're all like, oh, goodness, great. No, they're not, right? Well, if I go on and on about God, it's just what I'm passionate about. But so many people are shocked that we're Christians because we don't talk about God. And they're like, wait, you're a Christian? You go to church? Well, I had no idea. Why? He goes on and says this in Acts. Saul was going out to kill Christians and murder them. And he went to the high priest. He requested letters so, so he could murder. Then Saul got up from the ground through his eyes. His eyes were open. So he's blinded on the road to Damascus by Jesus. This, this murderer who should have been killed for killing Christians. And God forgives him. Jesus appears to him. He falls as a dead man. Then Saul got up from the ground and through his eyes, his eyes were open. He could see nothing. So they took him by hand and led him into Damascus. Okay, so they lead him into Damascus. Then a guy named Ananias comes and heals him. Ananias didn't want to go to Saul because he's like, he's going to kill me. I'm not going there. That guy's a killer. And God's like, no, nah, you're going. You need to go talk to Saul. When he arrived in Jerusalem, so Paul, Saul, who is also Paul, is led into Jerusalem. He tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. <laughs> we, we can't believe that God could change someone that drastically. Now, should you test the spirits? Absolutely. But then it goes on. Barnabas, however, took and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and they had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of of Jesus. This guy has changed. This guy has, was killing Christians and now he's running around repenting of what he was doing and he's telling people they need to repent because he believes in Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Listen, if your eyes have been opened to the reality of God, the reality of his church, the reality of your purpose in the world, then why isn't your mouth talking about it? It should be on your mouth with people. They should not be surprised. They should hear you singing praise songs to God. They should, they should just hear you. And not because you're trying to put on a show and be like, look at me, look at me. No, I really see the Lord. I see the armies. I see the reality of my world. I can't help but talk about it. I have hope. I have joy. I can't help but just talk about it. Even when I'm doing badly, I can't help but talk about it. Second Corinthians says, but here's our problem. Therefore, since we have this ministry of going out and talking and reconciling people back to God, telling them, because we were shown mercy, the ministry of going back to Aram and warning the king and saying, hey, we're not going back to fight. We've repented. Since we have a ministry now, look at what he says. We do not give up. Don't give up. Instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or disobeying God's message, but condemning, but um, commending ourselves to every person's conscience in, the, in God's sight by an open display of the truth. An open display, not a private display of truth, an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, in other words, it's like, is the gospel there somewhere? It is veiled to those who are perishing. If you're not excited about it, you might want to ask yourself, why not? You have the message that literally transforms the world. Why aren't you excited about that? He goes on, he says, 
In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves but Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. In other words, we're giving ourselves to you. For God who said, let let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God hasn't given you the, the light to see Jesus? That when you go to the scriptures, you can see who Jesus is? Or do you go to read the scriptures so that you can get the next application point so that you can use that to get a better life and then tell all your Christians how righteous you were to get a better life? Or do you tell them about how great it was to see Jesus and obey him? I saw Jesus in the scripture. When I saw him, he told me who I was. He told me who people were. He told me what to do, so I did it. And it was so awesome. I mean, we act like following God's the hardest thing in the world. No, it's much harder to just perish. It's harder to go through life with no hope and no joy. And I can be in the same boat. I'm not just judging all the Christians. Me, I can have that heart too if I'm not careful. Matthew says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte. So you're going everywhere to try to get one person. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day. Wow. And then he says, woe to you blind guides, blind fools, blind people, blind guides. You strain out a gnat, yet you swallow or gulp down a camel. You're blind, you're blind, you're blind. Please open up your eyes. Second Kings goes on. In 8.1, we have to pick up the story because Elisha said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, that's the Shunammite woman that we looked at last week, he raised a young boy from dead. Get ready, you and your household, and go live as a foreigner wherever you can. For the Lord has announced a seven-year famine, and it has already come to the land. So the woman got ready and did what the man of God said. She and her household lived as foreigners in the land of the Philistines for seven years. That's humility, man. To give up everything because some prophet told you there's a famine coming and you go and live with the Philistine? What? Like, okay, I'll believe you. You raised my son from the dead. You've proven yourself. It's not like you're listening to some random prophet off the internet. This guy lived in her home. She knew him. She saw him, like, do righteous things for years and years and years. She's not just following some random cult leader, okay? This is literally saying, I know you're the prophet. And so if you tell me there's a famine and I need to surrender myself to a foreign government, I'll do it. She and her household lived. When the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, at the end of seven years, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her field. Every seven years, there was supposed to be a year of jubilee that everything was restored in the nation of Israel. And remember, I've said this before, never once in any of the ancient documents do we find ever Israel celebrating a year of jubilee. They never set people free because it was too costly. They never restored back the land that God allotted when he gave it to Moses. Never did it because it was too costly. Because they had set their lives up so that they could never be free to give. But only take. And they never had a year of jubilee. And he's telling her to go back. Let's pick back up the story. Sometime later, after Aram is spared in the armies... 
King Ben-Hadad of Aram brought all of his military units together and marched up to besiege Samaria. This is the place where he just got sent. Now this king's like, yeah, there's a merciful God, but I don't want that mercy. I'm going to go kill him. Okay, there was, a, there was a great famine in Samaria and they continued the siege against it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 silver shekels and a cup of dove's dung sold for five shekels. In other words, you think your groceries are expensive. It takes like a lifetime of income just to buy a donkey's head so you can boil it and make some soup. That's how bad this famine is. And there's a siege, which means Samaria isn't letting any goods into the city. Because when you did a siege, you surrounded it and you wouldn't let anything come in. Period. You starved them out. That was the goal. Goes on, it says, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, my lord, the king, help. He answered, look, if the Lord doesn't help you, where can I get help from or for you? From the threshing floor of the rhine press. This king isn't even praying for his people. He literally looks and goes, I don't know how to help you. How about you ask the Lord to open the skies? How about you ask the Lord to open the eyes of the Samaritans or Samarians so they can or the Arameans so they can see the reality of who God is? Like, how about you tell them the stories of how God spared them and like remind nope, he's just pouting. I don't know how to help you, woman. Good luck. It's not, it goes on, it says, then the king asked her, what's the matter? This is like, this is like what, okay, what's the matter? Like, I can't help you, but tell me anyway. She said, well, this woman said to me, give up your son and we will eat him today. And then we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him and said to her the next day, give up your son and we will eat him. But she has hidden her son. This has gotten so bad that they're eating their own children before they'll repent. If you don't think you would do the same thing, you don't understand the scriptures because you will. You, you can be this wicked if you don't repent. You will do things you never thought you would do if you don't turn to God and have him open your eyes. I promise you. You think it's not possible? It's possible. You know what's great though? God will forgive you. Because if he can forgive Saul on the road to Damascus, murdering Christians and slaughtering them, he can forgive you and have mercy on you for anything. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his clothes. Then he was passing by on the wall, and the people saw that there was sackcloth under his clothes next to his skin. In other words, he was repenting, but he didn't want anybody to know. He he was acting sorry, but he was doing it in private. He wasn't publicly doing it, which is what kings were called to do. Publicly, he was acting like, we're going to win. We're strong. We can beat everybody. But then in his private room, he's like, oh, God, please help us because I'm portraying. Why didn't he just go out and say, I'm a terrible king. All the kings before me were terrible kings. I don't know how God's going to fix this. We're a wreck. Let's all repent together. Nope, can't do that. Got to put the show on out front and then hide what's really going on in your heart. It goes on, it says, he announced, may God punish me and do so severely if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a man ahead of him, but before the messenger got to him, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door to keep him out. Isn't the sound of his master's feet right behind him? In other words, the king's coming anyway. Don't listen to the messenger. The king's right behind him. While Elisha was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him. Then the messenger said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? In other words, this messenger says, what's the point of me waiting any longer? I'm tired of this. I just want to be dead. 
You ever been there? Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, the gate of Samaria, at the gate of Samaria, six quarts of fine meal will sell for a shekel. That's like nothing. A shekel's a penny. It's like, wait, we're doing 80 silvers for a donkey head, and you're telling us tomorrow it's going to be a shekel? For, and that's never going to happen. Six quarts of fine meal will sell for a shekel. Twelve quarts of barley will sell for a shekel. Then the captain, the king's right-hand man, responded to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord were to make the windows in heaven, could this really happen? There's the naysayers. God can't do that. Elisha announced, You will in fact see it with your own eyes, but uh, you're not going to eat it. Four men with a skin disease were at the entrance of the gate. In other words, they were lepers. Remember, lepers are the outcasts. They have to be outside the city. They're not allowed in. And in this story, God uses the lepers to be the ones that open the eyes of his people. If you think you're a leper, if you think you're unclean, if you think God can't use you, watch what happens. They said to each other, why just sit here until we die? If we say, let's go into the city, we will die there because the famine's in the city. But if we sit here, we're also going to die because nobody's feeding us right now, which is their biblical responsibility to take care of the lepers. The Old Testament said that God's people had to take care of the lepers. It was their responsibility. You couldn't just kick them out and be like, have a nice day and die. You were to care for them. But they realize there's nothing there. So now, come on, let's go to the Arameans' camp. If they let us live, hey, at least we live. If they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway. Like, these guys are desperate. So the diseased men got up at twilight to go to the Arameans' camp. When they came to the camp's edge, they discovered that there was not a single man in the camp. Well, that was shocking. For the Lord had caused the Aramean camp to hear the sound of chariots, horses, and a great army. The Arameans had said to each other, the king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to attack us. So they had gotten up and fled at twilight, abandoning their tents, their horses, their donkeys. The camp was intact, and they had fled for their lives. When these men came to the edge of the camp, they went into, into a tent to eat and drink. Then they picked up the silver and gold and clothing and went off and hid them. They came back and entered another tent, picked up things and hid them. Like they're going around, they're like, look at all God has given us. This is so awesome. Look at how good God's been to us. He's delivered us. This is so wonderful. And Christian, you can do the same thing. And we live in a church world today that that is the number one thing we do. We're trying to hide all this stuff. We're trying to preserve all this stuff. We're trying to keep all our friends, keep all our stuff. Like, we're, we're trying to preserve it. But watch what happens when these lepers' eyes are open. This is what it says. Then they said to each other, we're not doing what is right. We're not doing what's right. These are lepers. They've got nothing. And now they've been given everything. And they're like, but it doesn't matter because it's not right. Today is a day of good news, they said. If we are silent and wait until morning, our sin will catch up with us. Let's go tell the king's household. So the diseased men went and called the king's, the city's gatekeepers and told them, we went to the Aramean camp and no one was there. No human sounds. There was nothing but tethered horses and donkeys and the tents were intact. These men, these lepers walked at night in a land full of lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and they walked through the night to take the good news to people who weren't feeding them, who didn't care about them, who judged them for being lepers, and they're like, it doesn't matter. The right thing to do is to save other people. The gatekeeper called and the news was reported to the king's household. So the king got up at night and said to his servants, tell me what, you, what the Arameans have done to us. 
They know we're star- that we are starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we will take them alive and go into the city. So they're doubting it. They're like, there's no way God did this. They're, they're going to ambush us. Like the king is so doubting God in every aspect. But one of his servants responded, please let messengers take five loaves or five of the horses that are left in the city. Their fate is like the entire Israelite community who will die. So let's send them and see what will happen. The messengers took two chariots and horses and the king sent after um, sent them after the Aramean army saying, go, go and see. So they followed them as far as the Jordan. They saw that the whole way was littered with clothes and equipment and the Arameans had thrown off in their haste. The messengers returned and told the king, then the people went out and plundered the Aramean camp. It was then that six quarts of fine meal sold for a shekel and one quart of barley sold for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't say there are still four months, then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. Bloomington is getting ready to get really full. There are a lot of people coming and most of us are driving around dreading it. Because I can get to the mall in 12 minutes right now. But when all the students come back, my life's going to get a little harder. Instead of looking and going, look at all the lost people. Look at all the opportunities for me to share my faith. To tell them about the hope that I have and the good news that they don't know about. And they're hungry for knowledge. They're hungry to want to know what life's about. What the purpose of things are. Which is why they're coming to study at a university. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for and others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. They reaped everything the Arameans had built. They didn't do anything for it. They literally just had to listen to four lepers tell them, go. And when they went, They found everything they needed when they were eating their own children. And there are people out there who are hurting. They don't know what to do and they need the good news of eternity. Second Kings goes on and said, The king had appointed the captain, his right-hand man, to be in charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gateway. He died just as the man of God had predicted when the king came to him. When the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, 12 quarts of barley will sell for a shekel. Six quarts of fine meal will sell for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. This captain had answered the man of God, look, even if the Lord were to make open or make the windows of heaven, could this really happen? Elisha had said, you will in fact see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. This is what happened to him. The people trampled him in the gateway and he died. He was trying to hold back the people right? Trying to keep every, all the order, no chaos. We're going to do it everything exactly right because I've got it figured out because I'm the commander of the army. And God ran right over it. Be very careful that you don't establish your life that way in such a way that God doesn't run right over you. Because he's more concerned about people being fed, the blind seeing. He is more concerned about that than he is your position or your power, or your possessions, 
or your happiness. He wants people to know him. When the woman returned from the land of the Philistines at the end of seven years, she went to appeal to the king for her house and field. The king had been speaking to Gehazi. Remember, Gehazi is the leper that was given leprosy because he didn't obey Elisha. I wonder if it was Gehazi's family outside the gates of Samaria. Because this is the leper that the king is talking to. What four lepers would have access to the king at this point? The four lepers that brought the revival, that brought the newness. So Gehazi thought his life was over. God couldn't use him anymore. And look at this. And the attendant of the man of God saying, tell me the great things Elisha has done. The king wanted to just kill him. Now he's like, could you tell me all the great things Elisha's done? We just wanted to cut his head off a minute ago. Now you want to hear all the great things? Look at this. While he was still talking or telling the king how Elisha restored the dead son to life, the woman whose son had, res- had restored to life came to appeal to the king for her house and field. So Gehazi said, my lord the king, this is the woman and this is the son Elisha restored back to life. When the king asked the woman, she told him the story. So the king appointed a court official for her saying, restore all that was hers along with all the income from the field from the day she left the country until now. The nation didn't celebrate a year of jubilee, but God brought a year of jubilee to this woman. The king announced a year of jubilee for this woman, but he wouldn't do it for the rest of the nation. When he should have said, you know what? If she gets it, everybody does. But it should have been a lot more like Oprah. You get a car, you get a car. You, like it should have been, that should have been the year of jubilee. And instead, he's like, well, that's a great story. I'll give it to her, but I'm still holding back all for myself. And we can do that with the gospel. We can get excited about one person that we serve, one person we share the gospel with, one person comes over, look, I did my job. I'm, look, I'm, I'm good. There's a whole world perishing that still needs to be set free. I'm, I'm glad the woman's restored. I'm glad you restored her, but there's a whole world that deserves a year of jubilee. Hebrews says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, like lepers, like Ahazi, like the Aramean soldiers. For we do not have a high priest who is unable, but one who has been tested in every way as we are without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. See, there's a proper time. We don't get to tell God the time. Matthew says, then Jesus went all of towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, look at this, the harvest is abundant. 60,000 people are going to show up in Bloomington in three weeks, but the workers are few. We're all busy. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Well, but I use really hard. This is a bad town. It's really liberal. Good. Then most of them don't know the gospel at all. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out to heal every disease and sickness. 
Verse, he goes on in chapter 10 and says, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Later in Matthew 10, he says, But when they hand you over, which they will, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour. Therefore, do not be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be seen and made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Listen, your eyes have been opened. We just read the gospel. The scriptures are there this morning. Our eyes have been opened to the glory and wonder and mercy and grace and judgment and all of it. All of it we've seen this morning. And there's no better place than on Jesus that all of it culminates together. All of God's wrath and all of God's mercy and grace on the human man, the the God-man together. And when we have that good news, then it should be, God, help us to open the eyes. Please help us to open the eyes of those who don't know or open the eyes like the Pharisees and Sadducees of people who think they know. They think they're Christians, but they're not. Help us, Lord, open their eyes and use us in the process. If you want us to cut down a tree to open some eyes, we'll cut down a tree. If you want us to pray, we'll pray. If you want us to to. I don't know, whatever the story is, we'll do it. Because we just want to see lost people come before it's too late. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Man, bring laborers to Bloomington, Lord. Bring laborers. We have laborers coming. Jose and Ada are coming to Bloomington. They're moving here to start a Spanish-speaking church. God is bringing laborers. Don't look around and think, well, we don't have the numbers. Our church is so small. I don't know. Man, God is doing some great things. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for what you do in the lives of people. Thank you for your mercy and grace when we don't deserve it. And Lord, thank you that you've opened our eyes this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has kind of kept you at a distance. Like maybe they're like Elisha's servant who, who Elisha could see, but they couldn't see. They were afraid. They were afraid to take that step of really committing because they know that there's a cost to it. You told us there's a cost. And so they're holding back. Lord, I pray that today would be the day they finally say, okay, I'm ready. Open my eyes. I want you. I'm tired of all the things of this world. I'm tired of the stress, the fear. I'm tired of it. I just want you. And I pray they would believe your word by faith, that it wouldn't be a feeling they were searching for. It would be a faith in what you say is true that would open their eyes. And Lord, for those who don't know you, if there's anyone who's never committed to you, I pray today would be the day that you, they come to you and say, my eyes have been opened, I surrender. I understand that I'm not worthy. I'm worthy of death. I'm a sinner. Someone has to pay the price for that sin. And Jesus, you paid it. And so I accept that mercy and grace. And now I want to live for you and tell others the good news so their eyes can be opened. And so, Lord, I pray that you would please open our eyes to the lostness, open our eyes to your glory and your joy and your happiness and your peace in a way that maybe we've been pushing back from. And may we have faith in you. And instead of walking around in misery, may we walk and dance in joy, we pray. Amen.